we're going to go back to Samuel. And uh, let me uh, um, call attention to the, if you're looking at your notes, I've got a chiastic structure of Samuel uh, that's on your outline. And I just wanted to uh, point to a couple of things about that that are interesting to follow up on. I'm not going to develop them. But one of the things, uh, obviously, about a chiastic structure is to look at the center and what, uh, what happens at the center that's a turning point, a transition point in the narrative. Saul's death is right at the center. Uh, so you have the fall of the first king and the rise of the second king. You have, you have their intertwined, Samuel and David are intertwined in the last um, uh, 15 chapters of about half of First Samuel. Uh, the two, two are intertwined, but Saul is still king. David's been anointed, and he's destined to be king, but it's only after Saul's death that he finally takes that, takes that position. So uh, Saul's death is a transitional point in the sense that it's the uh, end of one reign, the beginning of another reign, the end of one dy- dynasty and the beginning of another dynasty. Um, there also seems to be some sense that the reign of Saul is a kind of, almost has a sacrificial effect in the way that uh, it's described uh, it, um, it, it purges the land, uh, allows the land to restart, allows the kingdom to restart with a new king. Um, I, I wanted to uh, highlight also the e, e and the E prime on the outline. You have Saul's fall. We're going to look at that in a, in a bit of detail in just a few minutes. Saul's fall is really a series of sins, uh, and that matches in uh, 2 Samuel uh, David's fall, primarily his sin with Bathsheba, and then the cover-up, which involves the murder of her husband, Uriah. But those two are juxtaposed in uh, the structure of the narrative. Uh, that, that makes sense, because they're both about kings that fail. Uh, what's remarkable, of course, is the difference between those two, uh, the outcomes of those two things. So Saul's fall ends with the uh, Saul's loss of the kingdom. David's fall does not end with the loss of the kingdom, although David's house uh, is in turmoil the whole time from 2 Samuel uh, 11 and 12, which recount Bathsheba, until the end of 2 Samuel, David's house is just a mess. And David's pretty passive. He becomes a kind of a non-entity. All, the, all this mayhem in his house, and he doesn't intervene to really correct it. But the fact is that he stays on the throne, or he, he's restored to the throne. So that's, a, that's something to meditate on. Uh, notice also the D and the D prime. Uh, Saul's rise is structurally parallel to Absalom's rise. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition, uh, partly because Saul and uh, Absalom have similarities to each other. Saul is described as being a head taller than anyone else. He's described as being a handsome man. Uh, he's described as being more handsome than anyone in Israel at the time. Absalom is described in very similar terms. We know, when we think of Absalom, we think of the hair. But he's described as a, uh, as a uh, physically, uh, a physically beautiful man. And Saul is described in the same way. So there's that parallel in that respect, in their person. But there's also the interesting parallel and contrast between the way they treat David. David is opposed by Saul, who at the time is David's father-in-law. So David gets opposition from a gen- the previous generation. And then David himself is father of Absalom, who 
attacks him from the other side. So you have a, a father and a son uh, juxtaposed in the structure that are both attacking David. And then one last note, uh, if you're looking at the structure again, you've got C and C prime. The exile and return of the ark is structurally parallel to the exile and return of David. So the exile and return of the ark is uh, the passage that I've alluded to a number of times about the ark being captured by the Philistines and so on. Uh, the exile and return of David is in the aftermath of Absalom's rebellion, David leaves the land, abandons Jerusalem, and for a short time, Absalom is basically ruling in the capital city. Uh, but then he, David returns. But the fact that those two things are connected, the, 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 the ark going into exile is the Lord's throne going into exile, and that's analogous to David as the Lord's king going into exile. The, the ark is the sign of the Lord's presence, and in some sense, uh, there's a parallel with David himself as the, as the human sign of the Lord's presence with Israel. So um, just wanted to highlight those uh, several, um, those several elements of that structure. First uh, and Second Samuel is also can be summarized as a story of three men, Samuel, Saul, and David. Uh, Samuel's story is told in First Samuel, basically one through 12. He has a farewell speech in chapter 12. Uh, he's still around, but Saul becomes a more prominent character after that point. Um, so uh, Samuel is the beginning. Then you have the first king, Saul, whose career occupies 1 Samuel, uh, basically 1 Samuel 10, when he's selected to be king until the end of 1 Samuel, when he dies in battle, uh, on the, uh, in battle with the Philistines. David's, David's story overlaps with Saul's. His story begins with 1 Samuel 16, when he's anointed by Samuel, and then, of course, goes to the end of 2 Samuel. So you have three, three men, uh, all of their, their lives overlap, but there's a, there's a focus of attention on Samuel in the early chapters, Saul in the second half of 1 Samuel, and then David in 2 Samuel. Um, Samuel, as I say on the notes, is the last of the judges. I said this yesterday, he overlaps with Samson. Samuel also is a, uh, uh, plays a, a priestly role. We don't know this from Samuel, from the books of Samuel. Uh, he's introduced, or his father's introduced as uh, a, uh, I'm in 2 Samuel. His father is introduced as uh, a um, Ephraimite, okay, in 1 Samuel 1.1, Ephraimite. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, but when you look at the genealogies in Chronicles, uh, we've, we discover that although they live in the territory of Ephraim, they are tribally identified as Levites. So Samuel is a Levite, he's in the priestly tribe. And so his, his, uh, his uh, life at the tabernacle, when he's, a, when he's a boy, he's dedicated to the tabernacle in order to serve Eli. Uh, that is in keeping with his status as a Levite. It's, he's not coming from a different tribe. He's a, he is a kind of priestly figure as well as being a judge and a, and a prophet, a seer. Uh, he goes into the tabernacle in a time when the, uh, the priests are corrupted, the tabernacle is being misused, and uh, we have this is one part of the account of the sins of the priests at the time. This is right after Hannah's song in 2 Samuel 2. 
sorry, 1 Samuel 2, uh, and uh, beginning of verse 12. The sons of Eli were sons of Baliel, uh, translated as worthless men, but uh, sons of Baliel is a, uh, it, uh, sons of worthlessness, you know, sons of hell, something like that. But it, the juxtaposition, they're, they're sons of Eli, but they're actually sons of Baliel. I mean, uh, uh, by blood and by birth, they're sons of Eli, but their actual character is coming from somewhere else. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. They're, uh, they, they're unbelievers, and they don't follow the rules of priesthood. And then they give, the uh, narrator gives an example of their failure to follow the rules of priesthood. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up to the priests, he would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest, sacrifice, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will take only boiled meat from you, not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first, and then you will take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, she'll give it to me, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men, the two priests, was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. We find out later that Hophni and Phinehas are sleeping with the women who serve in the tabernacle, uh, it seems like they're uh, sleeping with them, committing fornication or adultery in the tabernacle precincts. So that would be, that's, uh, that's prohibited. Uh, you can't even have sex outside of the tabernacle and come into the tabernacle without being cleansed. Having sex in the tabernacle is a pollution of the tabernacle. Okay. Um, but the great sin that's listed, that's described here first uh, is about the way that they're, the procedures of sacrifice. What's, what's going on, do you think, with their, why is it a great sin for them to send a servant to stick a fork in and pull up some of the meat? Or why is it a great sin for them to take some of the meat before the fat is offered? What does that mean? So, and it does say that they despise the offering of the Lord, which implies that they're despising God too. So it does expose what's on their heart. Uh, but but uh, in what way are they um, violating the sacrifice? What, what, what would it mean for the priest to take a portion of the sacrificial meat before the bur- fat, fat was burned? Okay, Who, who's supposed to get the fat? Right. Uh, Leviticus says that the fat, all the fat, goes on the altar. Uh, sometimes other parts of the animal go on the altar too, uh, but it's always the fat and the internal organs go on the altar. Uh, every offering, that's, what, that's what's done. So the fat is the Lord's portion. So, for example, if, a, is a, if one of the priests were offering a peace offering, uh, the fat is supposed to go on the altar, and then the priest actually does get a portion of the animal that they can eat. But they are supposed to offer the fat to the Lord first. Because they're servants of God. They're like, uh, they're like uh, waiters. Right? The altar is the Lord's table. Uh, Leviticus describes the, his, the altar portions as the Lord's bread. 
and the priests are like waiters at the Lord's table, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you order a meal and the waiter says, yeah, I'll get it for you. I'm going to sit over here for a while and uh, I'm going to finish my dinner first. Um, You're going to to stay at that restaurant for dinner? Are you ever going to come back? No, they're your servant at that moment and they're supposed to serve you first. They got to eat, of course, but uh, they're supposed to be serving you. And even more so when we're talking about the Lord's offerings, they're putting their own meal ahead of the Lord's meal. That's the great sin. Uh, that's, that's one of the great sins. The other one has to do with taking portions out of the boiling pot. Why would that be a problem? Because the, the priests are supposed to get part of the meat. I think the sin here is that they're, uh, they're just... Uh, they're taking whatever they like from the portion, from the from the altar, or the, from the sacrificial animal. So again, if you think of a peace offering, this is laid out in Leviticus three and Leviticus seven. Uh, if you take a peace offering, the fat goes to the Lord. That goes first. Part of the meat goes to the worshiper. They have a meal. Part of the meat goes to the priest. The priest has a meal. But selected, designated portions are supposed to go to the person and to the priest. And what the priests, these priests are doing is just taking whatever they can get with the fork out of the pot. Okay. Which means that they're probably taking some of the meat out of the, out of the mouths of the worshipers. They're trying to get the best meat for themselves. They're defying the Lord and then they're abusing the other worshipers. There's, they're supposed to be servants of the Lord's table. And they're also be, supposed to be servants of Israel and serving making sure that Israel receives uh, from the Lord's table as well as they do. You can say. Are you saying that they're taking that? Yeah. They're not allowed to do that, no. They're not allowed to, but these guys might be doing that. Taking, taking portions, you know, maybe they like liver, and the, but the liver is supposed to go to the Lord. So if they take the liver, they're actually stealing part of the Lord's portions. Okay. And that is a great, that is a great sin. It's, it seems kind of trivial to us. But when you think about what priests are supposed to be doing and how that's, they're serving the Lord right in the Lord's presence. And they're defying the Lord to his face. It's not like they're, you know, off in the, off in the hills somewhere and uh, uh, they're, they're right in the presence of God in the tabernacle. And that makes their sin even worse when they're defying him right to his face. So that's the kind of system that, um, that's, or that's the kind of priesthood that uh, the Lord, that, that uh, serving in the tabernacle in the early days of Samuel. Samuel, of course, is being raised in that setting. Uh, but the Lord calls him and he becomes a prophet. He's called to be a prophet. And he's a faithful uh, Levite and a faithful prophet, a faithful judge in spite of that surrounding. But that's the reason, it's the corruption of the priesthood that's the reason why the Lord uh, brings an end to that line of priests uh, and, and uh, dismantles the tabernacle. Okay. Um, so uh, a, couple, a couple additional things, thinking about the, uh, the, the connection between this story and other parts of, uh, other parts of the Old Testament. Well, let me, I was going to say this first. 
Uh, I think there's, there's the first Samuel does uh, indicate a distinction between Eli and his sons. Uh, his sons are very wicked in the eyes of God. Eli is uh, a, a, a weak uh, but more faithful man. His sin is, not, is that he doesn't restrain his sons from sinning. Okay. He, he knows that his sons are doing things that the Lord hates. And he warns them. But he still gets condemned for not restraining them. He should have been more forceful. He probably should have prevented them from continuing to serve as priests as soon as they started doing that stuff. You know, uh, we're going to find some other there, are other... there are other descendants of Aaron around. They don't have to be his sons. Uh, but uh, Eli doesn't do that. This is the, he's the first instance of a father who fails to control his sons. It's going to happen a number of times in the books of Samuel. We'll talk about that later. But he doesn't restrain his sons, and he loses the priesthood because he doesn't restrain their sin. His failure to restrain their sin is a, a, his fault, and he has to pay for it. He dies uh, when he hears the news of the ark being captured, as I mentioned. Okay, so... Uh, that's, the end of the, that's the end of this line of priests, or it's supposed to be the end of this line of priests, and the Lord is going to find another faithful priest. Uh, the, the line of Eli doesn't actually come to a close until the early days of Solomon, Solomon's reign, when uh, Abiathar, who's the final descendant of Eli to serve as priest, is sent off to a city called Anathoth. That's in the early, early chapters of 1 Kings. Uh, so during the time of David, you still have uh, a priest who descended from Eli around, but Solomon brings the final end to that line, and the line of the line of Eli's priesthood ends. Okay. Um, anybody hear of Anathoth elsewhere in the in the Bible? Do you know anybody who came from Anathoth? Came from the priests of Anathoth. I, I'm sorry. Can you? I'm still not hearing you, sir. Oh, he's a prophet. Who's what prophet? Huh. Start listing prophets. You'll get to it. It is a prophet. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a descendant of Eli. He's from the priests who are Anathoth. He's an exiled priest. Interesting. Okay. Uh, keep that in mind. Uh, what? Ha- where is the? Where is the? Uh, Ark and the tabernacle when Eli's when Eli is high priest. Shiloh, Shiloh right? It's where they where it was set up in the time of in the time of Joshua still in Shiloh. Okay, but that tabernacle at Shiloh gets broken down. It's never it's been dismantled. It never put back together. I already talked about that. Okay, so Eli's priesthood ends. The centrality of Shiloh as the place of worship ends. Later on, Jeremiah comes from among the priests of Anathoth. He's a descendant of Eli. And he's prophesying not against Shiloh, because Shiloh doesn't have a shine anymore, but he's prophesying against the temple. And he's prophesying that the temple is going to end up like Shiloh. This is Jeremiah 7. This is uh, 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 Jeremiah's famous uh, uh, temple, temple prophecy in which he says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. Jesus says that, of course, but Jesus is quoting Jeremiah. 
And Jeremiah is comparing the temple of his time, Solomon's temple, toward the end of the history of the kings, to the shrine at the tabernacle at Shiloh. The same thing that happened to Shiloh is going to happen to the temple. And that message about the end of the temple is brought by a priest who is descended from the priest who died when Shiloh was destroyed. Kind of ties together very neatly, doesn't it? So we got this connection between the event at Shiloh, the later destruction of the temple, uh, and especially prominent connection with Jeremiah and his, uh, his origins uh, and his prophecies against the temple. Okay, so that, uh, I won't say anything more about Samuel, uh, but let's, let's move on to Saul. Saul is anointed as the king. This is a, an, a, an act of Samuel. Uh, this is after the people have asked for a king. Uh, the, Lord, um, uh, the Lord gives permission to Samuel to go ahead with that, even though it's, they ask for it sinfully. And uh, uh, Saul is selected as the king. In uh, 1 Samuel 9, Saul is introduced chasing his father's donkeys around. His, donkey, his father's donkeys have been lost. And he eventually goes to visit Samuel because he's wanting to visit the seer who can give him uh, an idea of where his father's donkeys are. And while he's there, uh, Samuel anoints him as king. He's not seeking the kingdom. He's, he's chasing donkeys. <laughs> and what he finds is a kingdom. It's a pr- pretty good trade, you know. He be- he beco- he's an anointed king. He's anointed to become king. Uh, when he visits Samuel. And then Samuel tells him, uh, you're going to receive several, uh, several signs that you are approved as king. Uh, one of them is that he will meet a company of prophets. Uh, as he goes down from uh, the hill of God, it's called. This is in 1 Samuel 10. Going down the hill of God, he'll meet a company of prophets who are prophesying with harp, lyre, tambourine, harp, t- harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, and the Spirit of God will come upon you, will become a new man, and you'll prophesy. And that's, happened, that's what happens to, uh, to Saul. Uh, the sign that Samuel predicts happens. He meets this company of the prophets. The Spirit comes on him. He begins to prophesy along with the prophets. Uh, and he is anointed to be king of Israel. And he starts well as king. Uh, his first... Uh, his first vocation or first call to exercise his kingship is in 1 Samuel 11. Uh, look at, uh, we'll read a few verses of this. Now Nahash, Nahash, the Ammonite, came and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on one condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you Thus I will make a reproach on all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days. We will send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is anyone to deliver us, we will come out to you. And no one to deliver us will come out to you. And uh, you can pluck out our eyes. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. That's Saul's hometown. That's the city, remember, from Judges, the Sodomite city. And these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, Apparently, after his anointing, he probably he apparently just went back to his father's farm and started working on the farm. But when the message comes, uh, he um, 
is filled with the Spirit, verse 6. The Spirit of God came mightily upon him when he heard these words and he became very angry. And he cuts up an ox and sends pieces, uh, cuts up the oxen that he's plowing with, send pieces of them throughout Israel, calling on Israel to gather. Okay. Uh, there's several, uh, several connections here between Saul and the, the judges. Uh, the judges are gripped by the Spirit. They go out and fight in the power of the Spirit. Uh, Saul is going to divide his company into three companies, and that's a tactic that's used by Abraham initially in, uh, in the book of Genesis, and it's used by, uh, I think, I remember which judge uses that, that, uh, that tactic. But Saul is being compared to, uh, compared to a faithful judge here in delivering a city from the attack of Nahash, king of the Ammonites. And I kept pronouncing the name Nahash as Nahash. Uh, that's the Hebrew word. And in your notes, if you're looking at your notes, you've got a hint of uh, why that name is significant. Nahash means serpent. Okay. I think it's the word that's used. Uh, I don't know if it's the word used in Genesis 3 or not. I have to look it up. But it's a word that's used for, uh, the, it's used a word for serpents and for Satan. So Nachash, the king of the Ammonites, comes and attacks the city. Saul intervenes in the power of the spirit. He defeats the serpent king, delivers the city, and is uh, approved by everyone as king. Okay. That's a great start. It's like uh, Saul is starting as a, a better kind of Adam. You know, what should Adam have done when the serpent started tempting Eve? kill him, crush his head, right? Uh, he, didn't, he didn't protect Eve from that temptation. But Saul, at the beginning of his reign, in the power of the Spirit, is, is acting as a, uh, as a genuine Adamic protector and guardian of Israel. Okay. Unfortunately, he's like Adam also in uh, another respect. He's like Adam in that he falls and loses his kingship. Uh, and that, uh, that story is told over a series of chapters, chapters 13 through 15 in 1 Samuel. Uh, and to, uh, to lay that out, I, I'm going to back up and uh, discuss a, a larger thematic pattern that we find uh, in Scripture. Uh, when God first created the world, okay, everything comes back to Genesis 1 through 3. Just Whenever you think about anything in the Bible, does this relate to Genesis 1 through 3? Because it probably does in some fashion. Or Genesis 1 through 7, 8. So when God created the world, he created, uh, he planted a garden. The garden was east in the land of Eden. And then outside of Eden, down river, from the rivers that flowed from Eden, there were other lands, Havilah, where there is gold. Okay. God created a world, th there, was, there was a uh, from the very beginning, the world could be mapped into different territories. The names, of course, were not given in, you know, the names are given by human beings later. Eden, I, my guess would be Eden would be a name that God assigned to, the, to that place. But the names are given later by human beings. But there's, a, there's a, an organization to the world. As there's an organization cos cosmically, there's heaven above and earth beneath and the waters under the earth. That's the three-decker world that God creates in the seven days, six days of creation. Heaven above, earth beneath, waters under the earth, and then he fills those with sun, moon, and stars, land animals, 
birds, and fish. Okay. Uh, that's the cosmic triple-decker universe. And in the, in the, on the Earth, the Earth is mapped out in three different zones. There's the garden within the land, and the land is part of a network of lands that make up a world. Yeah, I'd, 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 uh, I think the, the answer to that, it was Amy that mentioned earlier today, 1 Samuel 8 is like a repetition of the sin of Adam. So Israel was supposed to be a nation that would, they would have a king. That was already determined in the time of Abraham and Jacob. Uh, Jacob says that there will be a king from Judah. Deuteronomy uh, has rules for Israel's kings. So Moses is anticipating Israel will eventually have a king. But uh, what's happening in 1 Samuel 8, I think A.B. was uh, put it well, that they're seizing kingship like Adam seized the fruit of the tree. Uh, and uh, it's the, not the Lord's time to do that. So in, in the providence of God, what they do sinfully ends up establishing something that he intends, which is the, king, the kingdom. But uh, that sin is, it's like, uh, it, you know, could think about it generally analogous to the, to the cross. You know, Jesus is put on the cross by the hands of sinful men. But when they put him on the cross with their wicked hands, they're accomplishing what God had determined to do, which is to bring the salvation of the world. So uh, uh, God is doing the same thing. He's overriding the sinful desires of Israel, and he gives them what he intended to give them in the kingdom. Does that help? Yeah. Uh, sorry? Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd have to think about, I don't know if there's any specific. Uh, I think the, the, the general pattern of, well, two general patterns of people grasping things that, they, that are forbidden to them. That's a recurring, that's a recurring thing throughout the Bible. And also the, the, um, the fact that God overrides human sin and accomplishes his purpose, even through human sin. That's, that again, the cross is the, clear example of that in the New Testament. Uh, I, think, I think Saul is uh, made new. I wouldn't use the word regeneration because regeneration has a specified, but he's, he's made a new man. He has contact with the spirit. He, he acts in the spirit. And yet the spirit then with, later withdraws because he resists the spirit. He, he, he quenches the spirit. Uh, he, he uh, what's Paul's language? Um, grieves the spirit by his sin. And so the, the spirit gives him up. I think, the, all, I think all of that is just, that's exactly what happened to Saul. That raises theological questions about the work of the spirit. It raises theological questions about uh, perseverance. Um, but uh, however, I'd, I'll just leave those uh, for you to ask others about. But I, I, I think what happened to Saul is what the text says. I think this, the spirit came to him at least made him a, a new man in the sense of giving him uh, the royal ability, the military ability, the prowess to fight against Nahash, to deliver Jabesh Gilead, to serve as king. Uh, in that sense, at least, he becomes a new man. But then the spirit uh, leaves him. I should say, too, that uh, I think that, uh, this is a... Uh, this is the danger for David, too. Think of, think of Psalm 51. 
Psalm 51 is the psalm that David prays, the psalm of confession that David prays after his uh, sin with Bathsheba. Do not let your spirit depart from me, he says. And he doesn't say it, but you could put in parentheses, as the spirit departed from Saul. So David is in the same danger, and the only reason the spirit doesn't leave David is because David immediately confesses when he's confronted with his sin. And Saul continues to dodge and try to evade responsibility and blame other people and so on. We'll, we'll look at uh, 1 Samuel 15 uh, probably after lunch now. But, um, yeah, that, I think that's a challenging question. It raises, it raises significant theological questions. But I think we have to take uh, the text as it stands. Uh, and it at least means that Saul is being transformed into the kind of man that can be Israel's king. And then he's not anymore. And that transformation into the kind of man that, he'll be, that would be Israel's king uh, is a work of the Spirit. Um, I, was talking about, I was talking about Genesis. Garden of Eden within the land of Eden and a larger world outside. Okay, another chant for you. You got ox, lion, eagle, man, ox, lion, eagle, man. Okay, now you've got garden, land, and world. Garden, land, and world. Garden, land, and world. Garden, land, and world. Okay, all right. Uh, there's a garden where uh, is a, it's a sanctuary. That's where Adam and Eve meet with God. Uh, uh, and uh, the very, uh, Jim Jordan's Through No Eyes is one place you can look to develop this. If you have access to uh, Gregory Beale's book on the temple, he also talks about Eden, the Garden of Eden as a sanctuary. So in the sanctuary, uh, Adam and Eve encounter God. In the land, the land of Eden is their homeland. Within, with, the garden was within that land. Uh, the world outside is the world into which they're supposed to expand. Okay. So there are different responsibilities and relationships in each of those zones. Garden is a relationship with God. The land is Adam's relationship with Eve and eventually with his family. The world is uh, Adam's relationship with the creation as a whole and as the human race expands with other, other descendants and families. So garden, land, and world are the three zones of the original creation. And those are the three zones in which there are falls in the early chapters of Genesis. There are three falls in the early chapters of Genesis. The fall of Adam is the one we all immediately think of. That's the, that's the primordial fall. But that's a fall in the garden. That's a fall in dis, this direct disobedience to God. What would be the second fall of humanity? Uh, one before that. Yeah, Cain. Cain uh, kills his brother in the field. So Adam sins directly against God. Cain sins against God, but he sins against his brother. That's a land sin. Killing your brother is a sin in the land. It's not a sanctuary sin, it's a land sin. And then Genesis 6 is the third one. What happens there? What is Genesis 6 about? It, yes, yeah, the world that falls and becomes corrupted, but what is the, what's the sin that leads to that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll stick with the language of Genesis 6, <laughs> and I'll leave, it, I'll leave this ambiguous too. The sons of God 
intermarry with the daughters of men. That's what, the, that's what Genesis 6 says. It's often interpreted, the sons of God, as an, angelic beings. Right? I'll, leave that, uh, I'll leave that ambiguous. But it's a sin in the world. And it's a sin of intermarriage. Okay. So those are the three, those are the three kinds of, those are the three zones, the three kinds of sins that you have in Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 6. Three falls of humanity. A fall in the garden, a fall in the land, a fall out in the wider world. Uh, those are the same kinds of sin and the same zones of activity where Saul falls. There are three falls of Saul. The first one in, in 1 Samuel 13 is his failure to wait for Samuel before he offers sacrifice. That's a sanctuary sin. That's a sin in, in the garden, as it were. It's a sin having to do with worship. The second sin in 1 Samuel 14 is with Jonathan. Now, this is during the battle against the Philistines. Saul imposes a fast on his army during the battle. Bad idea. Armies travel on their stomach. Everybody knows that. And Jonathan thinks it's a bad idea too. So he eats some honey and he's refreshed so he can carry on the battle. In fact, Jonathan initiates the battle. He's the hero of the battle. And what happens in the end of the story? Saul says, who ate something? Somebody says, oh, Jonathan did. He has to die. The hero of the battle has to die. So this is, this is not, it's not a brother-brother sin like Cain and Abel. This is a father-son sin. The father wants to kill his heroic son for violating a stupid law, a stupid rule. Okay. So he's, it's, this is in the zone of the land uh, of brother-brother kinds of sin. What's the last sin of Saul? We, we expect a sin out in the wider world, a sin in relation to Gentiles. Yes, correct, right. So that's a, that's, a, that's a world sin. A sin in, sin in relation to worship, a sin in relation to his son, a sin in relation to the Gentiles, a failure to carry out the harem. Okay. Yeah? Uh, is sin against the Gibeonites uh, the, Against the Gibeonites, yeah. Uh, that's not mentioned here. And I would have to think about how that might fit into this paradigm. It's not mentioned until the very end of 2 Samuel, or toward the end of 2 Samuel. But I'm um, I, yeah, not sure how that might fit here. Yeah, so you're saying he didn't defy the order, he just didn't know? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think I misstated it. Let me, let me make sure. Yeah, verse 27, you're right. Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put the end, end of his staff in take up some honeycomb. And then somebody tells him, your father strictly told the people under oath. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. So when he took the honey, he didn't know. When he's told that Saul said not to do that, he says uh, that was a bad idea. And, and Saul is troubling the land. Okay. Uh, yeah, did you want us to follow up with something? I was pointing to the last part of the story after the battle when Saul finds out that somebody ate something and violated his rule and he says whoever did that has to die and he's the, the rest of the army has to rescue Jonathan because Saul is about to put his son to death. That's, that's the, he doesn't actually carry it out but his, his uh, attempted, it, I mean it, attempted execution of Jonathan that's what I was pointing to. So uh, 
I'll say one last thing before we break for lunch, uh, and that is you have the same sequence of sins in the life of Ahab, but interestingly, in reverse order. So, First uh, Kings 20, Ahab spares a king of Aram, or a, a king of Aram, after he's supposed to carry out a battle, uh, carry out the battle against the Arameans. That's parallel to Saul's third sin uh, with regard to the Amalekites. First Kings 21, Ahab seizes Naboth's vineyard after arranging for his, his uh, murder. Actually, Jezebel arranges for the murder and then uh, Ahab reaps the benefits. That's a sin against a brother, a fellow Israelite. So that's analogous to Saul's attempted, uh, attempted execution of Jonathan. And then 1 Kings 22, the last, uh, Ahab goes out to battle, uh, and that's a, uh, a sin. It's, a, it's, not, it's not a worship sin, but it's a sin that is a defiance of the prophetic word. Micaiah tells him he's going to die when he goes out to battle, and he says, you know, go put, go put the Lord's prophet in jail. So there's a sin against the, the, prop, the, uh, the Lord's word, the, the word of the Lord. So uh, that, and that uh, sequence of garden, land, and world is uh, a, uh, keep those categories in mind as you're looking elsewhere in the Bible, because sometimes you'll find on a smaller scale, you'll find that kind of sequence going on. Uh, and, and also keep in mind the different kinds of sins. Uh, and this isn't just Bible talk, this is real life talk. Um, we can sin against God in the way we worship him. There are, there are still sanctuary sins. We can sin our, against our brothers. That's a different category of sin. That's a, a land sin. We can sin in our relation to the world by intermarrying with the world. In other words, by compromising with the world, by taking on the world's values. That's a sin of intermarriage, as it were. So that, again, a, a little scheme that might help you Think about different kinds of sins for yourself, different kinds of sins as you're talking to a congregation. And also this pattern is, is a, a, apparent in other parts of the Bible too, so uh, keep that in mind.